On December 27, 1979, I lay in bed all day. Whether I was asleep or in a coma later became a subject of dispute. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 41. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And today is the first in our new series of episodes, Extended Clip Quarantine Edition. As the Jean-Luc Godard, Chris Kyle studios have been split into three (laughs) pieces and splayed out across the greater Los Angeles area. Yeah, you know, we're keeping the pod going, even though, you know, everything's kind of over. Everything's kind of done. But, you know, you have this to look forward to. We're going to keep doing it. Yeah, I've got like a bubble boy set up going on (laughs) over here, trapped in a hermetically sealed room. I've started washing my hands. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, today we're going to be talking about Steven Soderbergh's contagion and what it means in the age of Corona. (laughs) And disturbs down with the sickness. (laughs) That's the double feature we have. Uh, No, Um, we're going to try not to do very topical stuff because we've been going so topical lately. And then you get this virus thing can't hear enough about it so we're gonna we're gonna get rid of that and just talk about some good old-fashioned hollywood entertainment yeah people just want to escape during hard times like these yeah Yeah, it's gonna be a post-depression type podcast (laughs) the recession proof industries a few parts of show business and this thing of ours yeah, this is the extended clip stimulus package. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be coming at you with, uh, you know, three podcasts a week. <laughs> That's what people need right now. Got to put extra podcasts in the pockets of the American people. You know? <laughs> what would they listen to? <laughs> If not for us. Uh, No, but today we are going to be talking about Reversal of Fortune, the 1990 film by Barbet Schroeder. And we're going to be talking about Bernie, the 2011 Richard Linklater film. Um, When I picked out this double feature last week, it was kind of in the guise of the primary election for the Democratic Party. Uh, in terms of the establishment and all that it could be represented by, which is Alan Dershowitz, who could also just represent the face of evil, versus Bernie Sanders, an actual uh, progressive uh, potential leader. And, you know, turns out that, uh, that one, other things have, uh, you know, taken precedence, I guess, in people's lives, but two, that, uh, yeah, Bernie got, Bernie got fucked over. And uh, so this is kind of our our second attempt at a victory lap that turned out to be a shame podcast recording. (laughs) We cursed Bernie. Yeah. Responsibility for his losses in the um, primary. Um, Yeah, it's our fault. Yeah, we're actually the shitty leftist podcast that has taken down Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got my tattoo of the uh, the Liberty Code from Elizabeth Warren's campaign. I, you know, a lot of people were, you know, under scrutiny for getting a uh, a barcode of uh, the color the color code or whatever of the the Statue of Liberty. But you know, to me, that's just America, and uh, so I I fully endorse any uh, you know. Uh, let's just say Holocaustian tattoos that Elizabeth Warren supporters have been getting. 
Yeah, I'm just I've decided to bite the bullet on this one and I'm full I'm a full Biden guy now. I got the no malarkey tramp stamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got I've got it like a barcode tattoo uh too, but the number is just the number of movies Woody Allen's directed. <laughs> Did you see that the New York Times ran an opinion column about Woody Allen meeting a cancel culture like today? yeah they said free him yeah they did uh you know i think that this whole you know pandemic situation and everyone being locked in the room and forced to just sit with their shitty opinions has made people really want to broadcast those shitty opinions and we've been uh we've been getting the the bad end of it it's mainly just been bad if you look at any part of online the last few days so we're just gonna ignore all that from here on out and talk about good old-fashioned Hollywood entertainment. Yeah, we got our nose up to the drama, all this COVID drama. So we're kind of above all that shit. I'm done with the games. <laughs> we're playing the game on top of the game right now. <laughs> this is 5D chess. Uh, so Reversal of Fortune is a 1990 film uh, based on a book by Alan Dershowitz, who is essentially the main character of this film, despite the fact that he is billed third, uh, his performance by Ron Silver, or rather the portrayal of him by Ron Silver. Uh, Anti-Semitism, <laughs> I think, is the reason of that. <laughs> Rampant in Hollywood. Uh, this is a movie that I initially programmed like as the B movie because it's like, oh, it's the movie, you know, glorifying this awful, you know, uh, terrible person who I won't uh, lob specific, uh, you know, descriptions of for the fact that he, you know, could sue me for calling him a pedophile or whatever. Uh, but he was just on the pedophile island. That's, yeah, exactly. That's, just... that's all. He was just the lawyer of pedophiles. That, that's as far as he we can go. With the staff. Yeah, uh, like but Trump, dude. <laughs> but this is very much a prestige <laughs> A movie. This this has the sheen. Uh, this was Oscar nominated and Oscar victorious for Jeremy Irons in his portrayal of uh, Klaus von Bülow, who. That performance is so like dumb and boring and just like the caricature of a brooding uh, kind of British fancy lad type dude who watches his wife die. Yeah, he'll be very like uh, there'll be moments where he'll have to deliver lines that are like like the emphasis is like, well, maybe I did do it because I'm so <laughs> I'm so dark. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I mean, Iron's performance, I mean, like, I think, I mean, he does the best with what he's given, but I mean, that relates to, I don't know, sort of my broader, like, overall critique of the movie, because I can, like, generally tap into and enjoy, like, some of the the big, fancy, rich people murder dramas, but it's, like, it's not, it doesn't indulge in any ornate spectacle uh, other than just sort of uh, the sets themselves. And it winds up being very boring for that aspect. And I feel like that definitely comes across in Iron's performance as this uh, twisted guy. Yeah, the only thing it really indulges on is like, it's like the psyche of Dershowitz. Like it'll just go on so many tangents of like, you know, Dershowitz think it happens this way. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I'm not, I don't know. Like I'd rather just gnaw on the meat of the true crime aspect of it, which could be 
somewhat interesting, but it's just drawn out to a very boring conclusion. Yeah, it's very strange that this doesn't climax with a courtroom scene, but instead climaxes with Dershowitz telling his like law students what he thinks his theory is, which is the theory that wins, you know, the appeal. And it's like very much just about how cool Alan Dershowitz is and how he's like the cool law professor that the law students work for for free, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's not he's not afraid to you know call him out you know he's just one he's just one of the the students basically they all live at his place with them all these young people and uh you know they they chill out and eat pizza they have pizza parties it's kind of fun i mean you mentioned this when you when malcolm talked about uh the movie a while ago but i think by far the best scene is watching uh der shoot hoops oh yeah <laughs> and two here i come here we go here we go taking you downtown and Dersh. take it in take it in foul okay here go here go you're not watch the hands watch the hands so it, it initially opens with the uh the top billed actress glenn close delivering a voiceover from her comatose state and uh she's describing how she's fallen into these two comas and then that her husband played by jeremy irons of course is accused and then uh convicted of like attempted murder and then it just after that setup is established it just is a hard cut to like uh just like intense close-ups of a basketball being dribbled and like you know you pull back at that man dribbling that basketball was superstar law professor from harford alan dershowitz yeah there's it really can't be said how many scenes there are of him playing basketball easily like (laughs) five or six which is very like very impressive like and since this is based off of Dershowitz's book, you have to like, <laughs> you have to think that like that is like heavily his influence. He's like, you gotta let it be known. Like I was always on the court. I was figuring shit out on the court. Like I had an epiphany in the case while I was balling. Like it's <laughs> this is really part of me, part of who I am. It's the court and me and the ball. Yeah. So of course, uh, as the uh, the hero's journey would indicate, and Dershowitz is the hero of this film, he's reluctant at first to help, you know, and he he expresses this uh, to his son, who he then expresses his recurring uh, what he calls the Hitler dream, and uh, relating it to this scenario where Hitler appears in his dream and needs to hire him as a lawyer, and he <laughs> represents and then kills him because he like has to do his job first. <laughs> Yeah, no, huh? Interesting that he would be very willing to uh, defend reprehensible monsters. <laughs> a potential theme arises in Dershowitz's legal career. Yeah, and like he just has like even this. The movie goes to a great like um, extent to show this, but Dershowitz just has such a willingness to rewrite the rules in his favor and like just rewrite moral codes. Basically, I mean that's kind of how. <laughs> he wins the case and that's like that's kind of why he's supposedly a great lawyer is his willingness to bend you know not not go by the truth but bend to the you know curve of the system and just kind of play around the rims of that 
Yeah, exactly. It's right after this that then you get the first scene of him with all of his law students, you know, helping him assess this case while he's still not 100% committed to it. And one student, you know, speaks out and it's like, oh, he's obviously guilty. Why are we representing this? This is completely immoral, etc. And then he, you know, obviously owns her with logic and playing devil's advocate. And I won't have anything to do with it. And I hope my fellow students won't either. Goodbye. May I exercise my First Amendment right to free speech? If lawyers only defended innocent clients, there'd be 10 defense lawyers in the entire country and none of you would be able to find a job. Hypotheticals where she is a child molester who is wrongly convicted or something like that just to own her. <laughs> and like, uh, he's like, you see, it after explaining this insane scenario where she's a falsely convicted child molester she says you see it's much more complicated than your simple moral superiority <laughs> yeah total sjw owned moment and it's just very interesting that you know in that hypothetical he's like well what if you were falsely ac accused of child molestation it happens all the time <laughs> just like oh it, do it doesn't <laughs> interesting <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of interesting that that happens a lot, and it's not true a lot of the time. So I guess people make that up. Yeah, it's so funny to have those layers like onto the film because I was like, I, I went into it like obviously expecting to uh, poke a little fun at some of the Dirsch stuff, but uh, I was just, I don't know. It's funny that those parts really do stick out. Yeah, you know, it's weird because it's like, uh, it's really trying to frame it in a certain sense of like morality but all it really is is just supporting everything that Dershowitz could possibly do uh and you know that is essentially the framework of the movie is just watching him play mental gymnastics with his obviously guilty client uh finding you know legal ways to uh you know uh repeal his conviction and it's just him working with these college students, scene after scene. You get Clo uh, Glenn Close coming back in voiceover narration from her coma. And you see her in some flashbacks, too, where her and Irons' relationship is tested on uh, multiple occasions. And, yeah, those scenes are really boring, honestly, of just, like, Glenn Close and Jeremy Irons having, uh, like, you know, arguments and stuff. Yeah. Oh, oh. Also, uh, classic, like if, if, if you're, uh, a student of Blake Snyder, yeah. if you're uh, hip to the screenwriting books, <laughs> they, 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 uh, they tell you don't, don't have any fucking narration. <laughs> and this, the Glenn Close narration is some of the most God awful yeah. shit. And just like instantly put me off from this movie. Yeah. It tries to create like a sense of like mysticism mm -hmm. to the whole case, like and just will speak like in these vague terms. It's like no one will ever really see it until you're in my position or something like that. And it's just like this is all just fucking gobbledygook. This yeah, is all no, just, like, it doesn't make sense. Boring. Especially that specific quote that you said. I mean, I, I'm sure you didn't quote it exactly, but how she ends the film, <laughs> she's basically saying you won't know the end of the story until you're where I am. And it's like, you're not dead. You're in a coma. Like everyone has to get into a coma to <laughs> understand yeah. the story. But also, yeah, her voiceover is really just like dead air. It's not contributing anything. And all of it just like goes in one ear out the other kind of total wash yeah and like maybe maybe what's trying to be said there is that like 
we'll never really know what actually happened or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic, classic true crime uh, cliffhanger. It's like the truth. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll never know what happened. <laughs> Even though it's I mean, a real I feel case. like. <laughs> the unintended uh aspect i mean i'm not sure if you were planning this eddie when you made this double feature but it's they're both like true crime uh stories yeah. that do like muse yeah that muse on that uh theme of like i don't know like uh the uh, knowing the truth of what happened in the actual or ac- uh, accident yeah i think yeah. that our our b movie definitely handles uh like raising those questions a lot more interestingly than this film does oh for sure mm-hmm. yeah and kind of kind of the inverse you know bernie is so likable and here we got this uh the rich guy i forgot his name just uh you know, klaus classic. yeah klaus yeah how could he love a name like klaus <laughs> yeah it's like yeah he killed his wife i he love how klaus like Throughout this whole kind of middle segment, the second act that takes up most of this movie where Dershowitz is just working with these kids and talking to witnesses and stuff, where he's just spitballing these hypotheticals that just completely like show how morally bankrupt he is, you know, just finding any way to weasel his way into the repeal being successful. Like at one point he's like, uh, you know, Klaus did what every man uh, needed to do. Every man has had that urge. Just because one person lets it slip, we should let him be a scapegoat for all men. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's he's, uh, positioning that he's being punished for the thought that men all have. He didn't actually do it. It's just like women know that men think about this, so they want to punish this one man, this rich powerful man who could have any woman he wants they want to yeah. they want to shackle him and put him in a cage because he represents everything they hate <laughs> and like the opposition you know the opposing force the conflict of this movie like there really is none but i guess it's if you had to pin it on one character while they're going it's the witness who they catch wearing a wire after who then like doctors <laughs> tapes to you know manipulate what dershowitz was saying and that that guy is one of the biggest hams in the whole movie that witness uh who's just like uh can i use your men's room please <laughs> when he's like in dershowitz's house it, it's so funny that it's just like dershowitz is the cool law professor who has all his students just come and do labor at his house just like operating as a student law firm out of this dude's house he really positions himself as like a like a like the people's champ oh yeah you know what i mean like like all they like take out food and like that's supposed to signify like some sort of like i don't know humbleness or whatever compared to like jeremy irons you know decadent lifestyle or whatever it just just the positioning is just nauseating and there's that like throwaway, like sort of why Dersh takes the case in the beginning is because he, uh, like Irons is like he's gonna um, fund his uh, defense of those falsely accused uh, black teens, yeah. which just like completely falls away. It, it's nothing other than just like bait to be like, oh well, I'm actually I'm not a lawyer that would actually care about rich people anyways, but. I don't know. Funny how he later positions himself throughout the rest of his career. If you look at his like late career as a lawyer, like the once you get to like Epstein, the client list gets super bleak. It's like it's like Epstein, Weinstein, Trump. Like it's just like <laughs> fuck. Like this guy's this guy runs with 
the wild hogs. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I love him applying that morality that this film is based on, kind of, which is like kind of an anti-morality, do your job anyway thing with, you know, uh, being at the defense of Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump. Like the very end of this movie, uh, you know, he says, legally, this was an important victory, but morally, you're on your own, which is just the most morally bankrupt thing he could possibly say in that moment. <laughs> I won't be your friend, but I will make sure you can murder your wife <laughs> if, if you want to. If you want, because we know, because if there's one thing about the fellas that I know is that we all we all think about doing it. We all want to wrap our you know our big hands around the soft necks, but yeah. Oh my god, yeah. So the the film climaxes before we get that line with him. You know, not in the court. It's such a weird choice to cut back to his house, him explaining what he's going to say in court to the students, and then it showing in flashback that that is, you know, one truth that you can believe about what happened here is that Glenn Close actually killed herself. And it's like him, you know, dropping that epic logic bomb on his students is like the climactic expert lawyer stuff that wins the movie for him it's a very weirdly anticlimactic movie and i don't know it's it's not good it's a it's a it's a bad movie i'll say that too it's very like the style is kind of boring there's like a canted angle or over the top or overhead shot here and there and you know uh, a couple of camera movements that call to attention but never really a nice looking composition and nothing really too like it's just kind of competently made and it's drawn out so much you know the pacing of this is like the pacing of jeremy irons's dialogue the rate at which that delivers <laughs> is the rate at which this film delivers its information as it goes and so it's really just like a slow burn that more and more teases out how morally bankrupt Alan Dershowitz is. So, you know, I gave it two stars when I watched it or two. Yeah. When I watched it, I rated it two stars on letterboxd, but I'm, I'm going to shoot this one down one bullet for the podcast. This is a, this is a one bullet bad movie by and about a bad man. I'm going to give this one two bullets. I, I, you know, on a rewatch, I was kind of surprised that like, I could bring myself to rewatch this as much as I could because it's so it's so slow. I mean, part of the reason why I think this movie is so bad. I mean, yes, it's it's it has the heavy task of uh, making a nice portrait of the now defamed Alan Dershowitz. But even a harder task, maybe it's like a movie that wants you to like lawyers and like <laughs> the process of being a lawyer. And it's just like I'm not there. Like there's a lot of scenes of like. Rom not romanticizing, but, you know, showing like in a cool way, like the process of law and like finding all like the nooks and crannies and things people said. And it's just it all it doesn't seem honorable. And I don't think it I don't think it is. And obviously Dershowitz isn't. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is worth a watch as like a, you know, cultural artifact. And uh, yeah, the fact that Jeremy Irons won an Oscar for best actor is just like must have been a must have been a slow year in prestige movies because <laughs> like. This this is a this is a slog even for like I don't know standard Oscar fare. Yeah, but, uh, you know what? I, it's it's just a it's an interesting document. Also uh, written by Nicholas Kazan, uh, son of known uh, traitor Elia Kazan. Damn, it runs deep in that blood. Yeah, yeah, it's it's this movie's connected to the elites in a, a lot of different ways. You know, pause. All right, here's here's a, here's a tip for the people watching at home. 
pause throughout the movie to look for Nambla logos. Then... <laughs> um, what about you, JT? Yeah, I'm going to give this uh, – this is like our little stepladder of reviews. I'm going to give this one and a half bullets. Um, yeah, I don't know. I agree with what Malcolm said. I was – the only real reason to for me to seek this out is just the interesting artifact of like – probably the last movie about Alan Dershowitz or at least potentially the last one that reflects upon him in a positive light. But yeah, it's not particularly interesting. I mean, as we've expressed before in uh, the podcast, we're like definitely down to watch movies about like reprehensible people, even ones made by terrible people. Um, but it's the, the style is completely absent. Um, and I don't know. This is a second disappointment for me from Schroeder. I uh, saw a single white female a few years ago, and I feel like that was one where I was like excited uh, as like an erotic thriller, but again, just sort of a, a dud like this. So mm-hmm. way to go, Barbit. Fuck yeah. you. You give us single white female. Why don't you give us one for the boys? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Barbit Schroeder is like, he's someone who makes the type of movies people say like they miss and like even like i say i miss like but his movies themselves are just like they've always been just kind of like mad at best but there's like i guess there's a comp- competence to his direction which i i feel like is not even really shown that way here but i've seen it in other places but yeah he's no he's nothing to write home about yeah i feel like maybe one star's a little too harsh as i said i give it two when i put it on letterbox mm-hmm. initially I, i'm gonna split the difference and give it one and a half bullets Respect. Respect to Barbit. Yeah. Respect to Barbit, who I <laughs> honestly, like, I misread the, the name and thought it was, like, Barbara Schroeder. And, uh, like, for a long time, seeing that name about this film and different films that he made, uh, I always the thought it was, The extra half like, bullet because he's a fella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could have sworn, I feel like I saw someone credit him during, like, a female filmmaker Friday thing or something like that. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's my other bit is getting a, a t-shirt that it looks like it's one of the, you know, shirts by women directors where it says like directed by Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> <laughs> I just want it directed by Barbet Schroeder <laughs> shirt in general. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Um, we'll be back to talk about Bernie. Hooker in pigtails and white boots. Ugh. She supplied class with value. He had a gorgeous mistress and he went with an ugly whore. You know, there are some things even mistresses won't do. <laughs> like what? I am not telling. <laughs> anyway. And we're back on extended clip. Before we get into our B movie today, uh, anything else you guys saw in the last week you want to catch us up on? Yeah, you know what? I, uh, you know, I was at home a little bit more often, you know, due to the circumstances, you know, and, you know, just by, by surprise, by accident, um, I watched two train movies this week, and you gotta love the train movies. Um, you know that doesn't even need to be expanded on. But uh, one of them I watched was Berlin Express by Jacques Tourneur, and uh, this one was really interesting. It's about it's post World War II, you know, directly after World War II, where uh, Germany's divided up amongst a bunch of countries, and uh, Berlin is in ruins. And this movie is like half in a train, half like shot in the ruins of Berlin, which makes for a lot of, you know, interesting crumbled architecture that kind of just looms around the film. 
And uh, you know, real, real solid performance from Robert Ryan. You know, I read in the Ignati Vishnevesky re- review. You know, the double RR rule. Movies with railroads and Robert Ryan are usually pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. And um, another interesting thing about this movie, it'll have like these narration scenes where you're, you know, you're kind of touring through Berlin that almost kind of takes on like a documentary style feel. And you kind of have uh tourneur, you know, maybe in collaboration with the screenwriter, screenwriters for this movie kind of pontificating on like, the future and the past of Berlin and what does it mean that Berlin is in ruins? And it's all, it's all very interesting. And it, it, it was, you know, it went, it went a lot of ways that I didn't expect. And I liked it a lot. Another train movie I watched under siege Two: dark territory, Steven Seagal, Eric Bogosian as the main, uh, antagonist. And that's kind of why I checked it out. I was like, you know, I had uncut gems fever, like, you know, the rest, the rest of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but, you know, a lot of people like that movie, and Eric Bogosian was great in that. And, you know, I, I know he has a movie with Oliver Stone that I still want to check out, but this seemed like one of the meteor roles for him, and he's uh, fantastic as a, a villain who uh, overtakes uh, an FBI or CIA um, laser missile, laser satellite missile that could just destroy anything on contact. And so he's just playing a cat and mouse game with the uh, alphabet boys from a train. Pretty fun. And then Seagal's just kind of like looming in the background for the movie, just kind of trying to figure out a plan, just kind of just like gathering guns and stuff like that. Um, real quality for Seagal. I feel like the Under Siege series are some of the more high produ- production movies he got to do. And uh, this one was just as fun as Under Siege 1, which I'm, I'm a big, big fan of, um, which has a, a great kind of wacky Tommy Lee Jones performance as the main antagonist. You kind of get a repeat of that here with Bogosian. Um, fun time at the movies, fun times with Casey Ryback. <laughs> I'm looking over the Under Siege 2 Dark Territory cast right now, and this this looks like a straight killer movie. I, I'm going to have to check this one out. Yeah, Everett McGill is also probably third build and yeah. uh, has an equally powerful performance. Damn. What about you, JT? Um, the one thing that I caught, I mean, for or unfortunately rather um i haven't been watching too many flicks a lot of uh just uh staring out the window <laughs> weary with the world <laughs> just sighing a lot uh, a handful of panic attacks but in between that um yesterday i checked out uh crimes of passion by ken russell and this was a flick uh that i blind bought um, I saw I was at a Fry's um, Electronics and I saw they had a big Arrow Films uh, selection and I was like, okay, I want to like check out one of these. This was a while back, and then uh, just the the sheer horniness of uh, Crimes of Passion. I mean, oftentimes, you know, men only think with one of their heads, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that's what made me seek this out. Um, the tagline is really great. Never have two consenting adults consented to so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but yeah, it stars uh, Kathleen Turner um, as this woman named Joanna who uh, works uh, in women's fashion, uh, but is also like a prostitute at night named China Blue. And she 
is obsessed or I mean, two men become obsessed with her in different ways. One a little bit more wholesome than the other. Anthony Perkins plays a reverend who is like ambiguously homeless, kind of crazy um, and very repressed uh, sexually. It's like a good companion to his uh, performance in Psycho, I'd say, on that regard. And then there's this other married man, or no, Bobby, who... Um, starts uh, he, he's in like a failing marriage and then starts seeing China and uh, their relationship sort of blossoms out of there while they're being stalked by Anthony Perkins. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. A lot of really like fascinating, like moody lit set pieces uh, with neon lights and um, cool overlays of a bunch of different like types of shades yeah, it's a very good horny flick. Yeah. Ken Russell knows how to make a quality horny flick. I haven't seen that one. But even beyond his, you know, renounced classic or renowned classics like The Devil's uh Laren the White Worm has some some hot imagery for all the boys at home stuck at home with some some long legs. <laughs> what about you, Eddie? Uh, well, the other day, I kind of got back on my Jean-Luc Godard tip. I went through, after starting my day with uh, Francois Truffaut's Stolen Kisses at like 7 a.m., I uh, then went on to some Godard odds and ends. I watched Letter to Jane, an investigation about a still, uh, The Rifleman, or Les Carabiniers, uh, I watched his segment of the omnibus film Seven Deadly Sins, uh, and I rewatched one of my favorite shorts of his, Je vous salue, Sarajevo, and a couple other shorts, you know, uh, including one called An All Around Maid, which is where he's at the Zoetrope Studios of Francis Ford Coppola uh, on the faux Las Vegas that Coppola has built for One from the Heart, and he's kind of just filming people uh sometimes without them knowing on set of that it seems like uh just kind of in disguise making a short and that's really fun uh but letter to jane was the most impactful one for me this is a dissection of a still of jane fonda in vietnam after she had done tuva bien with godard and jean-pierre gorin so the two of them the two directors of that film then basically just do a podcast and talk you know dissecting Fonda's image and what it means for a star to go over to Vietnam and uh, make certain faces that she makes both in film and in real life and the uh, kind of the semiotic and uh, more than that like ideological ramifications of uh, all of these seemingly small things that she's doing yeah so that was a really interesting one letter to jane an investigation about a still which played alongside tu va bien at i think new york film festival and it's kind of crazy that like while godard is being so prolific turning out all of these feature films he's also able to just sneak in these little mini films that he would also send to programmers alongside his features and uh yeah there's really no one like him uh ever <laughs> but especially yeah. now that works the way that he did kind of post 68 until like the 90s or so 
Yeah, those small films are kind of like the original uh, Easter eggs after the end credits. Kind of give him credit for that. He's got the OG uh, DVD bonus featurettes. <laughs> that's true. Carthage is in East Texas, and that's totally different from the rest of Texas, which could be five different states, actually. You got your West Texas out there with a bunch of flat ranches. Up north, you got some Dallas snobs with their Mercedes. And then you got the Houston, the carcinogenic coast is what I call it, all the way up to Louisiana. Then down south, San Antonio, uh, that's where the Tex meets the Mex, like the food. And then in central Texas, you got the People's Republic of Austin with a bunch of hairy-legged women and liberal fruitcakes. Of course, I left out the panhandle, and a lot of people do, but Carthage, this is where the South begins. This is life behind the pine curtain. And 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 truth be known, it's a good place. Bernie uh, is a 2011 film by Richard Linklater based on a true story. And uh, Jack Black plays the titular protagonist, and the film opens on him. Uh, as he doesn't refer to himself as a mortician, but a funeral director, giving a demonstration on how to properly, uh, you know, make up a dead body to look presentable. And uh, yeah, this is Linklater's really, I guess, dark comedy. Uh, It's not exactly a comedy like his other comedies. It's not like a hangout movie uh, with people pulling big stunts and stuff like that. This is kind (laughs) of jack black as a psychopath that uh the people the people love you know he he steals from the rich and gives to the poor yeah you know it leaves you with the question is like is is this a bad guy because everyone likes him and he's real nice (laughs) right (laughs) a lot of a lot of smarm you know this it shows you how far you could get a little bit of charm you know It's, (laughs) it's important to be charming Oh, yeah, this is uh, like top shelf link ladder for me. I think I appreciate it in the sense where I feel like in sort of like the link ladder verse of uh, being like from Texas and sort of obsessed with um, the different like cultures that exist there. I think uh, Bernie like where it really shines is it's such like a fascinating ethnographic like study. And I mean, especially with the like faux documentary presentation of it really works well to that accord, but it like, I mean, in the Rosenbaum review that I'd sent you guys, I think he like points out that he is able to see the absurdity of like these communities while not really being condescending to them. Like Mm -hmm. there is the treatment of the town as a whole and the fact that like they all like fucking love Bernie and don't and like don't even if he did commit the murder, they feel as though it's inconsequential to them. But he does it in a really holistic way that isn't like I I don't know. You're never like really looking too down on these uh, Texas residents like, oh, man, Carthage. That sounds like a place for dipshits to live. Um, It's a pretty respectable treatment. What the film does to use these people is it, you know, posits the pseudo mockumentary form, I guess, because there are, you know, chunks of the movie that play out like a normal uh, 
biopic fiction type film uh, but there's also you know a lot of direct addresses to camera and all of the all of the direct addresses to camera are made up by these local people, some of which are actors like Matthew McConaughey, and some of which are non-actors that are actually local to where this takes place. And I think it's that blending of fact and fiction and, uh, you know, what we believe is non-fiction film form with just, uh, you know, fictional, I guess you would say, uh, ways of doing visual storytelling that Linklater is able to make it into just kind of one big mush where he picks and chooses which uh, way he wants to approach each individual moment of the film. And I think it's a really interesting result. You know, I, it didn't hit me like it's one of his best films the first time I watched it. And maybe not even this time either, but the more I think about it, it becomes one of his more dense films, I feel like. Yeah, it's definitely one of his more complex works. And there's like, you know, even in kind of like the formal makeup of the but kind of, you know, maybe, you know, he's reflecting on the complexity of the story itself. Because, you know, as you said, like, it, you know, this town is willing to uh, accept a murderer, you know, a, char- a murderer who's charming, who gives back to the community, but, you know, murder nonetheless. And just kind of, they'd rather have his charming you know peppy attitude than like uh, the woman who was killed but it never really looks even it doesn't even look at that aspect of it as a negative or whatever it just you know it it um it finds the absurdity in it but it it never it never really lays blame to anyone even you know people like i think it's left ambiguous enough to where you know bernie's so liked by the town you know that his character you know still comes off as you know, a huckster, you know, ultimately this is kind of an act. He uses people, but in the end it's like, well, I, you know, the people were happy, you know, what really matters, you know, you know, should we give the people what they want? Yeah, no. And it's so weird when it comes to the end of the film, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but like, you know, you get all these people before the trial saying, Oh, if I'm on that jury, I'm voting to acquit, you know, Bernie of murder. Uh, And we should say the film, you know, the main chunk of it is Bernie's relationship uh, with a very wealthy widow. You know, he often befriends these widows after he directs uh, the funerals of their husbands. And so this rich woman ends up kind of uh, somewhat living with him, uh, giving him access to her bank accounts and putting him in her will and whatnot and still just treating him kind of like garbage the whole time and just being really mean to him, but still caring about him enough to do all these things for him. And then he uh, shoots her in a fit of rage uh, after he just can't stop his uh, wife-type figure nagging at him. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. we've all, hey, we've all, we've all fantasized about that before. Right, that one moment where you know, your wife, or just a female friend, even. <laughs> it's always reassuring to know that when you slip up like that, that the community has your back. This yeah. is why you just have to watch it on film because you can't live it out. The fantasy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then Matthew McConaughey enters as uh, the sheriff who is also or not sheriff he's like the the district attorney right because he's the one prosecuting mm-hmm. at the end Danny Buck Yeah and he draws 
it into a class analysis. He makes it so all these people of the town think that Bernie's helping him uh, or helping them, but he's really just, you know, this elitist rich snob who likes French theater, like Les Miserables. (laughs) Ugh. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me of uh, the scene in Joker where they're all watching Chaplin. (laughs) no but it is this very weird kind of twisting of the knife in this dark comedy kind of satire thing where the end of the movie is like oh they're posed with one challenge to the way that they think about their society and the people in it and it makes them convict him of murder and i guess change but then right after that, it kind of cancels it out as more people are still talking to camera and saying that they just got unlucky with who was on the jury. No, yeah. I think I think ultimately, like, these people, and, you know, not to make quick judgments, but these are people who are just in love with their hometown's mythology and all the gossip within it. And, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, they're just going to they're gonna take the better gossip. They're going to take uh, someone like Bernie who's more affable rather than the, you know— the the widow Nugent who just seems to yell at people she seemed pretty bad I mean I'm not saying she should have been killed but I mean yeah pretty pretty bummer vibes yeah honestly. a real a real good uh, nagging performance by Shirley MacLaine there yeah I mean I think like it's interesting to see where Linkletter himself like stands on like the whole is like Bernie like is like how much leeway he gets for being like a nice guy in that regard. And like with um, uh, Mrs. Nugent, there is like sort of a layer there where you understand, I don't know, through various forms of neglect one way or another, why she would become such an awful and like overall, like a manipulative woman. But I think like after the film came out, in terms of like where Linklater's allegiances lie, Bernie was released from prison for a little bit, and he was like living in Linklater's garage. Or like <laughs> the the terms of his release uh, were that because Bernie came out and was like a film sort of advocating for him in a way uh, that re- he was only allowed to be released if like he was staying with Linklater, and Linklater was cool with it. But I, there was a retrial where Bernie is is now serving uh, his sentence again in prison. Yeah, they upped his sentence to like 99 years after letting him hang out with Richard Linklater for a few months or whatever. Hey, that sounds worth it to me. Oh, I'd yeah. spend life in prison for that. Just <laughs> talk to Linklater about baseball and Godard movies. And Austin, Austin culture. Yeah, I'd ask him about School of Rock. Yeah. I'd be like, where'd you, find, where'd, you, where'd you get these songs from? Speaking of School of Rock, uh, Jack Black does do quite a bit of the song and dance in this film. And I think Linklater used that so well because, you know, he uses it first as a character introduction. After you get the first introduction, you get Bernie uh, singing along to the radio over the opening titles. And you see him doing like community theater a few times. And one of them is right after he shoots uh, the widow. He like lingers in there for a little bit and the score kind of builds up. And then it's just a hard cut to him performing uh, like a re- in a rehearsal for a musical. And I don't know that kind of... Uh, not to be all, oh, I like a dark, fucked up humor, but uh, the, the dark, I, I think Linklater working in like the uh, more dark comedy uh, vein is 
it's different than anything he's ever done really but i think he's pretty good at doing it in this film and it really it was a lot better on the second viewing than it was on the first for me oh in terms of uh the opening song that is like i mean this is like the best jack black performance for oh, me yeah. other than but School like of, Rock, the, maybe. Ab- of course um but like the the song just in the beginning sells like the god tier performance of it just him acting along and playfully like miming out little bits of love lifted me are so fucking good yeah. um and it's like i mean obviously great a uh, use utilizing like jack black's like clear talents with that yeah, and I love how much Linklater gives him to do. Like, it's still kind of structured like one of his hangout films, you know? There's like two or three plot points and then just a bunch of time in the middle to fill with good scenes, whether or not they're... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Incident, you know? Like, at one point, he's part of a... He's part of, like, a, a PSA for, a, like, a drunk driving demonstration <laughs> at a high school, which the way they stage that is so funny, and you just get all these terrified reaction shots of high schoolers who think that kids are dead, and, like, there's a guy in a Grim Reaper costume behind them. <laughs> and There's also... He's, like, organizing workers to, like, deduct expenses from on-the-job purchases <laughs> and stuff like that. And I don't know, just the way he leads a song uh, in like a group setting is very, I don't know, the physicality almost reminded me of like Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master. I think the way Jack Black carries himself in this movie is so otherworldly. It's a confidence that I've never seen him have in any other movie, even the ones where he's, you know, the crazy guy. Uh, This one, he just carries himself in a very strange, elevated way. Yeah, I mean, the way Bernie just... uh acts around like the you know the town people and just like how he loves to you know be in plays and you know do dress rehearsals and stuff is you know kind of speaks because like this guy loved to perform he loved to perform for these people and you know they loved him you know specifically the little old ladies you know which they specifically you know call by name like bernie is a performative guy and um you know it's it's perfect for him in that death scene for them to cut to him singing again it's just like it's back to the performance you know yeah. he's not going to give this up there's there's no reason for him to give up this perfect ambiguous lifestyle that he set up for himself <laughs> where he leeches off of uh you know <laughs> widows and stuff like that but like doesn't sleep with them apparently <laughs> Yeah, one of the uh, direct addresses to camera uh, from one of the townspeople says that he just has a knack for the drama, you know? (laughs) People love the drama. This this movie taught me anything. People love the drama. People are always like, I hate fake people. People love fake people. People love drama. (laughs) And like there, I mean, there is like in terms of Bernie's character, it's like an interesting examination where it's like there are aspects of it like where it's like his like there there is that such immense phoniness to his presentation and everything but like the amount of times he spends uh just generally uh being selfless is impressive like i don't know mm-hmm. like what you, eddie had mentioned about like helping people do their taxes but then it's like it is undercut by things where it's like the scene where uh, the the head funeral director is talking about how Bernie is like will upsell like parts of like the coffins, but he like <laughs> legitimately believes it. Um, and it's like I, I don't know if that's exactly true. 
but there is an element of Bernie's character where it's like he is buying into his own bullshit like yeah. a lot. And it's like, I don't know. They're like he's a huckster, but one of the nicest ones you'll ever meet. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes him a good one. Exactly. And I think some of that is in McConaughey's character as well. You know, everything he does sure. is somewhat, you know, gimmick based. Like he has his wheel of fortune pretty much of who he's going to track down that day. There's that gimmick. And then there's also the bit where he attracted a bunch of deadbeat dads who owe child support to a hands on a hard body competition. <laughs> and also the way he wins the trial is like completely reframing everything that they you know thought about bernie bringing in the money issue which is like what really divides him from them and uh yeah Mm -hmm. i think it's really cool how link later kind of just uses the lackadaisical pace of this fairly short film for how much it covers it's only a hundred minutes you know to like slowly tease out what each central character is really about you know and uses the the townspeople as you know many have noted as like a greek chorus to kind of take the temperature on uh like the society i guess that that's that this film uh takes place in and how everyone around is reacting to this story yeah and you know in that midsection where it's kind of going off of uh anecdotes kind of like mcconaughey's characters being you know spelled out through you know different stories different you know kind of schemes he does to attract people to his crime stopping and there's a lot of like i i noticed a lot of like uh, very subtle but like very well done uh, cinematography by dick pope in these sequences and i think it even transfers over to uh you know some of the bernie and uh widow nugent scenes where you kind of get like this overhead camera like an overlook of these characters kind of like it's almost kind of like distancing but uh works for kind of like the dark comedic pace that the you know movie's going for so bernie is uh you know ruled guilty at the hearing and then that of course is undercut by people talking to camera saying that you know uh in the end god will forgive him and that's all that matters uh and i love how just like with every bit of truth that you get for what seems like a conclusion to the story link later undercuts it with well it was fucking unbelievable nobody could believe it you know i could see somebody wanting to do that to her and uh but bernie t just last person i would thought done it what appears to be actual documentary truth but could be you know more fiction and then the credits roll and there are like you know uh clips of the actors as they scroll by on screen like some of them just people who played themselves with you know uh matthew mcconaughey and jack black and whatnot in the beginning of the credits uh making it like indistinguishable uh which is uh you know invented for the film and which was real and uh, yeah, I think it's like very unique in Linklater's filmography for that. And I'm going to go ahead and give this one four bullets. I'll give this one four bullets as well. I mean, Linklater, Jack Black, you know, what a combo. They've made two really good movies together. And, uh, you know, this is this is kind of a role where, you know, you want Jack Black doesn't really I mean, he doesn't really get roles like this. And it's always fun to see people perform under you know, the right circumstances. And I think, yeah, there's something that Linklater just knows about Jack Black to where he could kind of squeeze a performance out of him like this. Yeah, just also, also I, what I haven't said, it's kind of a great, you know, kind of like 
almost leisurely pace to this movie the way it goes along it's just it's just it's a real pleasant watch for a dark movie it's a real pleasant watch that's, oh yeah that's like what i gotta say about that i agree with you on that one i like i feel like this is one that i will revisit with time just like a, a middle of the day rewatch kind of movie just throw it on uh good vibes despite the dark content um yeah i'm gonna give this uh four and a half bullets i mean for a lot of similar reasons like this is like a major good vibes flick it's just like it immerses you so quickly into the town and the whole layout and to compare it to um reversal of fortune like it's so much like for being like having this outward appearance of like a relatively light and breezy film it uh interrogates so much that reversal of fortune is trying to do with shaky morality fact versus fiction in so much of a more compelling way where like the formal aspects of it like integrating uh real life members of the town along with like the actors makes it such a much more complex work and i don't know in terms of examining link later's uh filmography for me i think it's while it does stand out a whole lot it's a great lens to sort of view him through yeah i agree with that you know it's like the the down home texas uh link later is really uh apparent in this and like rosenbaum uh relates it to everybody wants some and even the newton boys in that review that you mentioned and i'll put it in the the description for the episode because of course if someone like Rosenbaum is singing the praises of this movie, you should probably read that instead of listening to us. <laughs> no, read and listen to us. At the same read time. Read the Rosenbaum review. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's why we dropped the link at the end of the episode. So people <laughs> people have already listened. And then it's like, here's what you should actually do. It's our twist. We should do some more link later. I feel like he's, you know, when when we get back together IRL, I feel like that's a good hang with the boys, watch some Ricky Link, and uh, you know, just <laughs> Seth vibe it out. You know, that does sound nice. We got to get this Ricky Link nickname off the ground. Yeah, I like it a lot. <laughs> I started shouting it out <laughs> online in like 2012 or 2013, maybe. Uh, no one was really picking up on it then. Maybe I'll maybe I'll throw it out now. You know. No, Ricky Link is going to stick. <laughs> it's here for good this time. Yeah. Um, you can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Our first email this week comes from Jack Hansen. It says, a classy question for a classy podcast. Wow. It's a good topic. I wonder what the email is going to say. <laughs> yeah. Respect. Howdy, extended clip. Big fan of the pod and wanted to present the team with a little game of fuck, Mary kill. Oh boy. Okay. Classic. Well, okay. Let's let's see. It's uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, Park Chan Wook, and Sam Ramney. It might be a typo, uh, but I'm pronouncing it as typed. Sam Ramy Malik. Sam Ramney. Um, hmm. Huh. Huh. I, I guess all all I have to say about Park Chan Wook is that I don't really I haven't really investigated. Damn. Uh, our our remote server has uh, fucked up another form of communication so malcolm's answer from what i heard is that he wants to f all three of them um and i think i think i think that means that jt and i don't have to answer that question no i want to answer i want to answer i, I thought about this a second well malcolm was talking about how she wants to fuck all three of them 
potentially at the same time in some sort of them running a train on Malcolm with him in the middle of this <laughs> director sandwich. Um, Whoa, this is like this, that's a complex train. Uh, um, I'm gonna say fuck Refn, uh, Mary Park, and uh, yeah, yeah, that you know where Kill is. Damn parody. <laughs> We're not going to kill Sam Ramney, whoever that is. <laughs> um, and I'm not allowed to answer that question legally. Damn. That's because you're related to Sam Ramney. Yeah. <laughs> There's a conflict of interest there. Um, our next yeah. email comes to us from Sean Glynis, and the subject is habits. Boys, I want to know about your movie-watching habits, as well as a peek behind the curtain. What are your typical as well as ideal watching setups? Do you have to watch something in one go dealing with interruptions? What kind of screen? By yourselves? Etc. And are you guys chatting about the movies offline during the week as you presumably watch them alone? I think he means online. Or offline. I don't know. Thanks, Sean. Off air note. Oh, this part's off air, so I won't say it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is it really private or something i mean really... i'll just i'll say it after the record it's not like a big deal or anything it's just you know, okay yeah i shouldn't have said it <laughs> for sure my penis is small <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i'll take my answer off the air <laughs> got him um yeah i've i've kind of had the same setup for like a few years i i used to rotate like where my desk and my bed and my tv were every you know six to ten months or so but i've been stuck in this setup for like three or four years and uh i used to put like a blanket over my window because like my blinds weren't strong enough to keep the sunlight out but now i got these shades that are pretty dark so you know i just always watch a movie sitting on my bed my laptop is connected to my TV via HDMI. And I, I guess I always try to watch things in one go, unless they're like three hours, then I'll take a little intermission. But usually I'll watch things in one go, pausing for, for bathroom. And uh, yeah. What about you guys? I have, a, I have a moderately sized TV that I do HDMI to laptop to. My couch is about a foot and a half away from it. That's pretty close. Maybe. Or no. No. It's definitely that's like pretty close. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, I'm just no. It's definitely like it's definitely like eight to ten feet actually. Uh, <laughs> no, foot away is pretty close. Yeah, I was gonna be like, I, I just forgot measurements. Um, but yeah, I try to watch everything in one go. I mean, I, I uh, my roommate will sometimes watch it. You know, come in and watch. You know, a few minutes with me, or we'll just like sit on the couch looking at his phone while I'm watching it. And, uh, yeah, sometimes they'll notice things. I'll be like, yeah, you know, that's the movie. That's what's going on. And, um, <laughs> that's, 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 that's pretty much, it's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no, nothing too crazy about how I live my life. That's all I got to say. Um, yeah, for my setup, I mean, it alternates between two. Um, there is a big, uh, 4k TV in the living room that I will occasionally do. If I have the time, if I have the day off, I'll uh, watch the flicks out there because, of course, you want the biggest screen possible. But sometimes when I need to, like, I don't know, like work them around my schedule, I have a smaller TV in my room 
that I will watch in bed, lay, relax and back. Um, sometimes, not in my bed, I won't watch things with my roommates, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the living room, sometimes they'll like tag along for a little bit. I like, I don't know, interruptions happen in life. I will like pause the movie for some things. Like if, uh, I don't know, as, as my needs hit me. Um, yeah. I used to be a lot more strict. Yeah. I try to avoid as many interruptions as possible. Like as much as one can without being like super anal. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I guess we didn't talk about, yeah, we don't really talk about the movies watching them up until the podcast. Yeah. I think that that saves the magic. We don't yeah, want to have yeah. anything prepared. We don't want to do any planning with this. Yeah, usually when we meet up, like we'll say like, "Oh, uh, that one that we just watched." Oh, yeah. Well, well, we'll save it for the podcast. <laughs> also, it's like we usually wait to watch the movies until like you know, pretty up until the recording. Oh yeah, I podcast. just finished the double feature. I watched them concurrently at the same exact time. You know, and uh, <laughs> Threw both of them on one laptop, one TV uh, at like 5 p.m. And then we're good to pod by seven. Yeah, exactly. That's it's, you know, by watching both of them at the same time, you have to try harder to pay attention to both of them. So you actually learn more about each movie than you would just watching them individually. (laughs) So that's going to do it. Uh, As you heard in the beginning and throughout this podcast, we are separated by the virus, and we're going to keep being separated by the virus until we defeat the virus. <laughs> yeah, until we find a cure. Yeah, but we're not going <laughs> to, like, I don't think we're going to have guests or anything, but I don't know. Maybe we'll figure out some alternate or bonus content or something else to do, right? We, we, we got time on our hands. Yeah, we have time. We can do fun things, I yeah. guess. Like, I'll write you a note. If you want me to write you a note, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you. I'll do, I'm willing to do that. I'll just give the link to the Discord voice channel that we're on right now, and everyone f- will flood in at once. Yeah, we should, we should record a live app. We could do Damn. that. We could, we could stream our podcast as we go, kind of. That would be weird. But, that, that, hey. Extend a clip live. We're looking for mm-hmm. intelligent podcasting solutions. Yeah. All you know is that, you know, extended clip is the future. And if we're not ahead of the curve on this virus shit, dude, we're going to get left in the dust. (laughs) (laughs) You can always reach out to us on uh, Twitter at extended clip 69. I'm at iPod underscore video. Don't follow me. I'm at Bitchface palace. Follow follow me. I'm at uh, tall boy, thin legs. I'm indifferent whether or not you choose to follow <laughs> You have the right and liberty. It's it's your choice. You're going Dershowitz with it. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't respect you, but I'll your right yeah, to do so. I don't want to follow you, but I will defend to my death the right of you to follow me. I think it's okay for minors to follow you. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um all all references to Alan Dershowitz were uh, uh, purely fictional and coincidental during this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, APAC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, 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 wait! I uh, have to. I'm gonna let the people know what the next uh, films for next week are. Oh, I thank have you. a double feature that I prepared. That the theme is two westerns but yes. two different types of Westerns. The A movie 
is the 2000 Thai film uh, Tears of the Black Tiger. And the B-side of that is from the king of B-movie westerns, Bud Bedecker. It's 1956's Seven Men From Now. Hell yes. I love Seven Men From Now. Well, that's a hell of a double feature, JT. And uh, we will see you next week. Marjorie, please. I can understand chewing each bite of some food 25 times like chicken fried steak, but I don't think you have to chew your refried beans that many times.